Hello and welcome to the Meet the Masters podcast presented by Scale Up Milwaukee. Meet the Masters is an interview series that highlights entrepreneurs, business owners, and CEOs and their successful expansions and stories of growth. This series is presented by Scale Up Milwaukee, an initiative of the Greater Milwaukee Committee whose focus is on transforming the culture of growth in the region. Scale Up does this by hosting impactful events and business accelerators designed to infuse growth into every corner and help spread inclusive economic prosperity. You can find out more about Scale Up at scaleupmilwaukee.org. This episode features an interview with Euless Payne Jr., president of Addison Clifton. This interview originally took place on October 15th, 2017. Good morning, y'all. How are you feeling? Good. I'm great, thank you. So thank you for joining us again for a Scale Up Milwaukee Meet the Masters conversation. So this, this is going to be a little bit of a different, different type of, of Meet the Masters than we've done, because I've got some things that I want to talk to you about that, are, that, are, uh, that I'm, I'm very interested in. So without giving too much of an introduction, because we'll hear it during the conversation, please help me welcome Euless Payne Jr. to Meet the Masters. So one of the reasons I did it that way is because if I was to read a bio, we wouldn't get a chance to talk. <laughs> so Euless was born uh, a few minutes ago. He's a young guy. And he has had more jobs than most people I know. And what I'm excited about is the diversity of your experience is interesting, and it makes predicting what's going to come next impossible. So let me just frame something for you. In Euless's words, uh, my father always said, I'll die trying. That's what I'm going to do. Interestingly, his son's words, work hard, be humble, be great. And then in Euless's words about himself, I've always tried to distinguish myself by doing the little things, the little extra things to get ahead. So in this pain DNA, there seems to be a work ethic, uh, a humility, a modesty, and a, and a willingness to just do more and do it longer. Tell me about that. Well, I would just say we're all creatures of our environment, right? And so uh, those things that have the greatest impact, at least on me, and from what I've seen in my 62 years on this planet, uh, on others, is you don't, have a, you don't have control. Who your parents are, your genetics, right, affects your health. Uh, where you grew up, you know, the school you went to, you're not your call. Uh, if your first grade teacher wasn't good, uh, you might not like school, right? Uh, so for me, it was where I, where I grew up, my parents, the environment. Uh, my father talking about jobs, you know, to me, it's not the job, I, I am, the engine, right? You know, you work at different companies. Uh, the company doesn't make you, right? It's really you, right? You know, you just bring your portfolio to the company. So for me, um, my father always worked three jobs, eighth grade education, he's a truck driver, a mechanic, um, bowling alley attendant. So my mother, she was an operating room technician, but she waited on tables in the Elks Club on the weekend. So. Uh, I always was in an environment where 
multiple hats, multiple things to do was common. Mm -hmm. So I can't say any more than that because that seemed to frame, you know, my point of view. And then luckily, um, I had a chance to, with other, to, to, to meet some good people and have good opportunities. And, and I bring, you know, whatever Euless has, my bag, <laughs> you know, I bring my bag to the job. I like it. I'm the engine. That's a, that's a great image. So you are pulled to Marquette. You used to be, uh, or I want to make sure I get the tense right. You are a basketball legend. I'm not sure about that, but yeah. I used to play. <laughs> you used to play. I used to play. You played pretty well. Yeah. You know, you yeah. got you got drafted to the Pistons. Yeah. Um, you got cut. Yeah. But that's but but I would argue maybe that was a great thing. Talk to me about how you turned the uh, the challenge of being cut from the NBA team, which would at that point have been the the goal to make it to the NBA. How did you turn that into a success? Well. Not intentionally, because my goal was to be a pro all my life, and it motivated me, you know, first to go to college. Couldn't have gone to college without basketball, really. So first time I got cut, really, <laughs> from any team was then, right? And I was 21, 22. Took me about a week to tell my parents, because I had thought I'd let them down, because that was my, I was right there, right? Uh, but life goes on, sun comes up. You know, it's like losing a big game. You got to go to practice tomorrow. So all that training in my life and experiences, when I had to deal with it, you know, how did I deal with it? Uh, I found a way to do it and again, kind of moved on. Nothing special, just kind of how, how, how you look at life. I, I, I like the thoughtfulness. So after, after basketball, you, you go back to Marquette. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, business degree, graduates in 1977, uh, goes to the Pistons, come back to Marquette for law school. Mm -hmm. um, at that point, if I met the 23-year-old Ulysses and said, what's the 20-year what's the plan, what would the answer have been? Um, didn't know, for sure. It's like, thought I'd be in the NBA, get cut, got to make it an adjustment. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure we all had the same experience. Uh, most things don't go as planned. Although we have plans, we need plans, plans give you direction, but in all honesty, uh, we have to say most things in our life has not gone as planned. Whether it's who we're with, who we're working for, what we're doing. So for me, I was a business major. I'd worked for U.S. Steel and IBM and intern programs during the summer. So when I did get cut, it wasn't a total shock. I was prepared to get a job. Um, real quick story, I wouldn't be a lawyer today, but for my brother, who was going to be a lawyer and never ended up being a lawyer. Um, I'm, after I get cut by the Pistons, I moved downtown to uh, Juno Village. I'm working at MB MGIC's headquarters, a company called Ambac, their municipal bond subsidiary. So I, and I walked to work. It was like three blocks. If you check the weather, December of 2000, I mean, uh, 1978, big snowstorm here in Milwaukee, two feet of snow. Honest to God, the city was shut down for three days. Check it out. My girlfriend was in Chicago, couldn't get her, but they shut the system down. Well, I just moved into the apartment. My brother helped me move in over Thanksgiving. And uh, so now I don't have much in the apartment. I'm shut down, stores are closed. So I read everything in the house, in the apartment, not much. And I find under his bed, in the second bedroom, an LSAT, Barron's How to Go to Law School type book, all the evaluations on law school. So I'm stuck inside for three days and I take 
five practice exams over and over again because I had nothing to do. At that time, uh, television went off at midnight in Milwaukee, if you guys remember, right? <laughs> really, seriously. <laughs> it did, <laughs> I'm telling you. So it was like no TV, it was no cable, right? It was three stations. So I, I read everything in this book, I bet you four or five times, and I took this exam by the, by the clock. And by the time I was done, I said, you know what, I'm going to law school. At that point, it was too late. It was late December. Usually the missions, you have to submit it by early December. The only one I knew was Marquette. Hey, give me a break, I'm a little late, but you know. And I applied to one law school, got into Marquette, but to this day, I would have never been a lawyer, but for that snowstorm, I was a business guy, and I found that book. Shows you how most things don't go as planned, that's what I'm saying. And that then allowed me to see and do some other things. So, so one of the things I wanted to talk to you about, actually, was uh, sort of a cultural marker for the Midwest, right? We have a habit of uh, predicting what's going to happen as opposed to aspiring. Yeah. And you, you bring up a really fantastic point. You know, we talk to businesses and we say, so, you know, what are you projecting for the next year? And they say, I think we'll do 5%, 8%, 10% growth. And then we, Skelet Milwaukee, we work to coach them to aspire to 15, 20, 25% growth. So, you know, I'm interested, what you've described thus far is that uh, you're a guy that works really hard. Everything you do, you're gonna do to the extreme. You're gonna read, Go you're gonna read the book and take the, the practice test five times. But talk to me about when you did transition from, you know, giving up on predicting what's gonna happen to saying, okay, whatever I do, I'm gonna do it the best of my ability and understanding how you're gonna follow that, that is a goal mm -hmm. strategy. Again, creatures of my environment. I've been an athlete all my life. Played all sports, tried to excel. One thing about an athlete is um, I'm fortunate enough to get to play with a lot of good athletes and a lot of good coaches who push you. And that is, um, if you're working out, if you say, I'm gonna do 50 sit-ups, I could tell you, when you get to the 47 sit-up, it gets really tight. The 48th, the 49th, as opposed to saying, I'm gonna do as many sit-ups as I can do. Cause that's all I can do. Mm -hmm. And some days it'll be better than others, but I'm, I'm gonna do as many <laughs> as I can do. Cause you say, how many did you do? I don't know, I did the most I could do though. And so it's sort of like um, shooting a free throw, right? It gets Notre Dame, 20 million on TV, your mother's in the stands. The free throw though, it's a make or miss. The worst you could do is miss. Hmm. So you take the free throw, right? You don't, you don't worry about it. You just do the best you can do. So for me, my life for many years had just been that, right? I mean, are you gonna win a game? I'll let you know when I'm done. Mm -hmm. Because until I, until I do it, until I give it, I really don't know. So, I, so to me, that was sort of like, it still is. That's my mentality. It's like today, you know, I'm, I'm going at it. You know, uh, if it's you and me, Elmer, my mother's watching too, you know, I might have to knock you down. I'll help you up, but I might have to knock you down. <laughs> I appreciate it. Mean, that's, that's, sort of, that's, that's how I'm doing it. I'm yeah. trying, well, like crush you with a Christian spirit, you know yeah. what I mean? Uh, so, so that is that a thing, by the way? Oh yes. Okay, oh, yes. I'm, I'm gonna. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's that's a that's a. Oh new yeah, one. oh yeah, oh yeah. You say, sorry, bad foul, boom. Yeah. 
You okay? Help, help you up, man. That's a new one for sometimes, you. So, sometimes, sometimes. That's just how it's going to go. Sometimes. So, you know, what you all might not, what, excuse me, what you might know about Ulyss is uh, he has this distinguished athletic career, which, uh, as we just heard, resulted in him becoming a lawyer, you know, attending Marquette and uh, going to work for uh, a couple of different firms, including getting a master's of law at the University of London. I, I want to mention that. So he's a partner at Reinhardt, Werner, Van Duren. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's interesting and that's important and, 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 and exciting. But then you get this, you get the call, right? Actually, it goes from Reinhardt to Foley and Lardner. And then you get the call. Mm -hmm. And the call is, hey, will you be on the board of the Brewers? And then there's another call that follows that and it says, hey, will you come run the Brewers? Mm -hmm. And at that point, the Brewers were in a historic low, uh, 10 years of very poor performance. And if you all didn't know anything about me, I'm not a sports guy. So forgive me if I refer to touchdowns as we talk about the Brewers. <laughs> so you take mm -hmm. the lead, you mm -hmm. take control mm -hmm. of a failing organization of a failing uh, athletic team, of a failing entertainment venue. What the heck happened? What were you thinking when you said yes? Mm -hmm. uh, and talk to me about those first days, what you decided you wanted to do. Well, again, there's always a history. Nope, not predicted, right? Again, I was at Foley and Lardner, and Foley represented Major League Baseball and the Brewers and a bunch of folks. Um, but I had started, my involvement with baseball was when I was appointed by the governor, Tommy Thompson, to the stadium authority that owned, that was going to design, build, and own Miller Park. It's called the Southeast Wisconsin Professional Baseball Park District. And that's what got us started. So I learned a lot about it, building, design, went to, went to, China, uh, to Japan, to Mitsubishi, look at retractable roofs. Uh, but we got stuck. Okay, I was at Reinhardt today. We got stuck because there was a problem with financing the stadium. Uh, the legislation passed and said it's going to be $250 million capital mm -hmm. for the stadium. But as usual, it takes two years to get the legislation passed and two years to get it built. And by the time it's ready to build, that 250 was too, too little. And it really was a $350 million number. But the problem was the statute said 250. So I never forget, I get a call uh, one evening from, from Tim Sheehy, CEO of the uh, MMAC, the Chamber, who I know very well, we're good friends. And um, Jim Keyes, the then CEO of Johnson Controls, and Bob O'Toole, then the CEO of A.O. Smith, who were MMAC board chair, like one leave and one come, and said, UP, we, can, we need to have a drink. So, you know, I'm up for that. Mm -hmm. So we, we go to the university club, we sit up there and says, look, is it that hard? So you mean, getting this stadium built, is it that hard? I said, well, guys, let me tell you the, you know, the inside baseball, what's going on here? And um, the governor and Bud Seelig were at odds you know, over it. And long story short, they said, look, if we lose a Major League Baseball team for the second time, we will never be able to recruit the kind of talent A.O. Smith and Johnson Control needed or to retain them in this town. He says, if it's the case, man, our, our global headquarters are here, this is going to be a struggle. So they said, will you get this done? And, you know, I'm down. 
Let's see how many sit-ups we can do. Yeah, okay, <laughs> we'll try it. So I go about spending time, late hours, about how to figure out how to get this stadium financed under the legislation. When I found out, traveling to a bunch of the stadiums around the country and going to Wall Street, is that in a, in a, in a stadium like, like right now, the seat there typically lasts 11 years. Mm -hmm. So you don't want to buy that seat. You want to lease that seat. In a stadium, there's probably 2,000 television sets, security, in the suites. You say, well, in television sets, technology is changing such that you don't want to buy those TV sets. And particularly the, the, the scoreboard, in that time, the technology was really changing, right? And like now, it's mm -hmm. crazy. So again, every five years, Mitsubishi told us, so you know what, that technology is really moving. Now it's probably every three years. So again, don't want to buy that scoreboard. So the elevators, escalators, same way. Mm. So we kind of figured out, you know what, about a third of the stadium are things we don't want to buy. They won't be capital items. We'll lease them. Worked on synthetic leases. Long story short, that's, I got into like the bones of baseball. You know, how, how, how stadiums make money. It was really to, to solve a financing issue. And that was the reason why I got the call to be CEO. Because at that point, I got a sense of the business community and who is supportive, who could help. I got a sense of, uh, again, what it took to, for a baseball club to be successful. And I realized then when I got the job, too, I was a, I was a change agent. I was, I was uh, 47 years old, I think. And, and so I wasn't going to, you know, it was one of those things, I'm going to take this opportunity, do as many sit-ups as I can, and then, and then you're out. I'm off. So I, I found this wonderful quote. There's a philosophy I brought to the table. I call it manage by fact. We manage by fact, not by forecast, not by hope, what others say, what others expect. Not those things. So what, what you can find about this, this moment in your life is that you came with uh, an incredible amount of respect. Uh, people were very excited. You absolutely were brought in to be a change agent. But you also seemed to demonstrate, despite the fact that uh, to that point you had been a practicing lawyer and you had run, uh, you, you know, managed law firms, law firms. Uh, you had an incredible capacity for uh, management. And not even just business management, but the actual uh, deployment of human capital. So you did a lot of turnover. Um, you made it your role to attract the, the best and the brightest. Tell me about your philosophy there. Would you, what, what did you think of yourself doing every day? Um, you know, businesses are designed to meet the needs of people, right? I mean, if you think about it, no matter what business we're in, we're really designed to meet the needs of society. And, and, and baseball is a big business. Um, but it's really related to sport and it's related to the human condition of wanting to be part of something. We all do, whether it's school, family, Cub Scout troop, whatever it is, right, PTA, we yearn. That's part of our, you know, our egocentricity. We, we yearn, we're, we're, we look at ourselves first, but we certainly like to be part of something, right? And we see that now. So that was fundamental to me to say, Milwaukee, Wisconsin had a history to Brewers, it was the Braves, of baseball, loved it, yearned for it, and so was give them a taste of it, right? They say in business to be successful, the first principle is give them what they want. If you give them what they want, you could charge a little more, right Kelly? 
You know what I mean? Really, you know, Starbucks, no sale. No sale. Apple, no sale. I give you what you want, pay for it. Matter of fact, you get in line for it. So for us, it was like, you know, we want to, I won't give you a ticket because you're going to pay me to get out. You're going to buy something to eat, something to drink, buy some merchandise. I give you a $2 ticket, pay me for parking. So to me, it's sort of like make that connection. And, and so that was, our, our, that was my goal, to say baseball, hire the best people like any management. Uh, you're only as good as your teammates, so you hire the best people. Right. And then never, never leave sort of the, the fundamentals of the business. In baseball, it's the heart. It's sports. You know, Packer game, right? You go to the mall on Sunday, Packer game, nobody in the mall. Yeah. On the way, pick and save that morning, people got their Packer shirts on like they're ready to play, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, <laughs> never threw a football, couldn't catch a football. But man, so, so, so that's what we want to just touch that heart, right? And then the rest will take care of itself. So in the span of a year, you added something like 800,000 uh, ticket buyers right. or attendees to right. the game. Right. Um, what did you get to say to yourself? When you, what did you say to your wife when you went home? You're like, yeah, I did it. You know, I just did 57 sit-ups, or did you say? I said, I'm tired. Give me a beer, please. <laughs> no, but I, you know, I, I went down the slide with a home run. Bernie Brewer, I did that a couple times, right? Mm -hmm. We had women on Wednesdays, right? Because women wanted to go hang out, too. Okay, we had massages and we had, instead of beer, we had champagne and strawberries and chocolate, right? I mean, we, we, we again, we just gave them what they wanted. Mm -hmm. So for me and my wife in particular, uh, she was with me a lot late nights there, it's just understanding what people wanted. You listen to what they said. First of all, ask them, you know? We, we, we had, now they do it all the time. We had that our first, my first season. Into the season, we brought everybody to Miller Park who wanted to come, and we did like one of these. I sat on a stool with, general, with Doug Melvin, our general manager, and Ned Yost, and we took the questions. We found out what they wanted. We found out that they wanted something for kids. We found out, you know, so to us, it really was given what they want. And so with my wife, I'd ask her, what did you hear? Because her girlfriends would call her, you know, and somebody at school, this kid fell down, and you know, they didn't clean the bathroom. And so those things, again, I'm, I'm getting that intelligence. And she was our, our biggest um, skeptic. Like, she, if the elevator was late, she let him know, you know. So, mm. so it was helpful uh, to have her available. So you spent one year, roughly, with the Brewers. And then you said, enough. That's how many setups I can do. Uh, you take a little bit of a break. And by the way, um, you're sitting with someone who was uh, ranked on a list of the 50 most influential, important, powerful minorities in, in professional sports. Just to give you a sense, the number one in that year was, uh, do you remember who it was? Mm. It was Bob Johnson, CEO of BT. BT. Yeah. Mm. Number two and three <laughs> are Tiger Woods and Serena Williams. So I think that's a pretty good list to be on. Uh, that's number four was Michael Jordan. If you're curious, this shows uh, I'm old. <laughs> but, but go, ahead. <laughs> go ahead. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. So you take a little minute sure. off, mm -hmm. 
And then you decide to uh, start Addison Clifton. Mm -hmm. So at this point, you've been a you know practicing attorney, mm -hmm. CEO of uh, a really great law firm, actually twice. Mm -hmm. uh, you've developed a pretty strong international practice. You've now run a major league team mm -hmm. uh, and an entertainment complex. Mm -hmm. Why would you start a business at all, knowing mm -hmm. that it is a uh, impractical, unreasonable thing to do? Mm -hmm. And then what was your strategy in making sure Addison Clifton was going to be uh, a big success? Well, again, didn't know for sure, right? Just don't know how many, you know, success or not, but I'm going to see how many push-ups I can do. Mm -hmm. And, and um, so after the Brewers, it was a real, it was like being cut by the Pistons, right? Um, the commissioner and I, who was the owner, we had a disagreement. This is why the tenure was cut short. And you, the history will show if you Google it, right? It's all there. Um, it's better that you say it than I say yeah, it. Yeah, that was good. It was, and it was an argument about how much money the payroll would be. Because we followed in baseball that um, we did our analytics, right, right away. When I got in, let me see what the game is. And it was a direct correlation between payroll, wins and loss, attendance, profitability. Okay, so it was sort of like a dotted line, say, okay, I can see where the trend is, right? So we had a disagreement over the payroll and how the payroll, what the level it would be. Um, and, you know, you, you work for the owner and you say, look, you know, uh, you asked me to take this job. Uh, if I can't do what I need to do, then we should, we should split. So we agreed to split. The good part was I had a five-year contract. Mm -hmm. I had a pretty good lawyer who wrote it. So I knew, you know, I can take some time, see what I want to do. But before I became a Brewers president, I was a customs lawyer, international business lawyer, and customs was my, was my area. And I chaired their national team at Foley as well. And I saw before I left for the Brewers, 9-11 happened, okay? And before 9-11, my work as a customs uh, lawyer was working for big companies, some of the biggest ones in, in the world to move goods around the world, and there was a tax. Anytime you import a good into a country for consumption, you're gonna use it, the country's allowed to tax you. And there's some standard duty rates. So at that time, our clients, we were moving goods around the world, repair goods, replacement goods, to reduce cost, taxes. But after 9-11, everything changed. Because it became, uh, we were aware that the bad guys were everywhere, weapons of mass destruction, there's millions of containers that you see on those ships that are loaded. Those same containers are on the back of an 18-wheeler. Same containers are on a boxcar on a railroad, okay? So those things move around the world. You can't check them all. Uh, there was real concern. So we, we saw this need for compliance management systems. There wasn't such thing as Homeland Security Department, okay? The Customs Service used to be in the Treasury Department because it was a tax. Its name was changed to uh, Customs and Border Protection, now moved to the newly formed Department of Homeland Security. So I saw before I left that the world had changed. So when I left the Brewers and took some time off, I always coached my kids' uh, basketball teams from fifth grade to, until they got to high school. So I, was always, I had a busy winter. Mm -hmm. But then when spring came, I said, I need to, I don't want to lose my game, right? I got to keep my sit-ups going. And one thing I did know was customs, and I did know trade cross-border transactions. And so it really wasn't so much I was smart, it's just that the marketplace created the demand. 
And that's one thing I would say, entrepreneur, so it wasn't like, let me sit here and think about what I could sell. No, you say, well, what do, what do they want? What's the market need? So there was an inherent demand. And now, of course, you see compliance everywhere. But, but, but for us, it really was analyzing, based on what we knew, our history, what the market needed. And more and more now, you see that the anti-terrorism issues, chemical and biological weapons, um, immigration, counterfeit goods, uh, the, 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 the awareness is much greater today. But it was really just looking at after 9-11, the world had changed, and the good part was, and I'll shut up here, is it was all new, the rules were new. So you look for a competitive advantage. Every business, there are barriers to entry, okay? Like you just can't show up and compete against someone who's been there a while, right? They find ways to create barriers to entry. And in our trade compliance business, with the rules all being new, no one had an advantage. Mm -hmm. So whether they were Price Waterhouse or whether they were Foley and Lardner, they didn't have, the rules just came out. Everybody got them the first time. And so we thought about using that opportunity and see how many sit-ups we could do. So your life was very different now. You go from essentially having a job mm -hmm. uh, where, and a contract where you can say, I don't have to put up with this, mm -hmm. to you know, eating what you kill. Yes. Um, and you know, we're in a room full of many business owners yes. who only eat if they kill. Right. And so talk to me about the transition from essentially employee to employer mm -hmm. um, and what you, what you did to make sure that every day you, you did a, a couple more sit-ups than the day before. Well, I, I, I would say one, um, I had one year, as an, year and a half as an employer with the brewers because as a lawyer and a law firm in Foley, we're, we're a partnership, um, you did eat what you killed as mm -hmm. a partner. You know, I became managing partner because I killed a lot. Because, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's how that works, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, you know if you, unless you could talk to walk the walk, you can't lead them. So as a lawyer in a law firm, and that's like a doctor in a medical practice, people come to you. So does your phone ring? Do they ask you for your service? So in like a law firm, you're not an employee. You have, as, a, as a partner, as a young associate, yeah, you get a salary in that. But, but to become a partner or become a managing partner or the head of a practice, you have to be able to bring it. So, and again, clients get bought and sold. Clients go to other lawyers. Um, so, so for us, every year, for me, there was no assurance of what my income would be. And so every day is a practicing lawyer I had to bring my, it was me, right? It's what, what they called it in fall, we called your law post. Why would people call you? Okay, so you have to have like, what's your game? It's like in, in basketball, right? A, a good team, there's five players out there at one time, but everybody does a little something better than the other, right? The center block shots, uh, the point guard can penetrate, the shooting guard can shoot the ball. And so the question is like, what do you do? What, you know, what's your go-to move? So as a lawyer, I always had to have a go-to move or two. So starting a, the Addison Clifton based upon, again, the natural dynamics of the market, so there was a demand. The mm -hmm. question was, could I bring it, right? But we figured out, you know, we don't do foods, we don't do chemicals, you know, we do aerospace, defense, we do um, automotive, we do specialty manufacturing. So the question was finding out, like, 
what was my law post, all right? And, and so for, for Addison Clifton, we, we sort of gravitated to what we could do best by the clients that we had. Hmm. Was, it, was it hard? Yes, still is. How does it relate or how does it compare uh, with what you've done in the past? Well, in this case, while in the past you always worried about, like here at Foley, at the Milwaukee office, we were probably 300 lawyers, 200 non-lawyer employees, and, but there was an engine. I had partners and we were, you know, a thousand lawyers around the, the country. And other partners like me were working to get it. So you kind of knew that, you know, everybody should get paid. Um, but in my firm, uh, I really think about the pressure of the people who work with me, that their mortgage really does depend on me. Where I didn't have that quite, quite a much of a sort of a, a sense of pressure uh, when the firm was bigger. But it, it, we said, as in Clifton up and, and trying to convince some folks to leave a job to come join us, a new company, I had to compete on compensation. So now I got obligations, right? At the same time, you don't know like a law practice, you don't know who's going to call. You know, and, and, and unlike, uh, I think in all businesses out here, you know, there's been a shift. It used to be on the manufacturing side or service side, uh, the history was you develop something and you price it, you get variety, and you go out, knock on the door and say, Elmer, how you doing? Did you hear the latest joke? Blah, blah, blah. And you go out with a joke and a donut and try to sell it. How many you need? How many blue? How many red? <laughs> right? That was the story. Where over time now, it's been more of a customer in. It's like Starbucks going and say, I want butter, butter, butter latte with a dash of this and a drizzle of that, you know, skim milk. Because <laughs> it's customer in. It's sort of what I want. And so to me, that's the, that's the challenge is to say, come and join me. Trust me, we're new, but, you know, we're small, but <laughs> we're good. I'm not sure our clients are yet. But I believe that we'll get them. And so that's the stress. That was the difference, right? I mean, it was before I could always take care of myself. But now I'm asking others, and I feel like I have to take care of them. And I, and I appreciate that honesty. One of the challenges with uh, the way we talk about owning a business and, and growing a business is kind of skipping over the, the personal pressure. You know, the, the challenge of going home to your spouse or to your family worried about, you know, am I serving my people well and, and, and right. am I making this a secure experience? So, you know, I'm happy to hear you talk about that. So we do have a room full of business owners who are working hard to grow their ventures. And I, I do invite you, if you have questions, to jump on in. Um, and I have plenty. Good. So, same year you started the business, you opened an office in Shanghai. Yes. Then you later on office in, opened an office in? Ningbo. Thank you. Yeah. And Chicago. Yes. Um, do you open offices to fulfill your growth or in planning growth? Do you understand what I mean by that? I do, I do. Um, one, again, we try to read the market first. Don't be smarter than the market. I think, if anything, I've seen 
by being a practicing lawyer first for many years or an advisor now, you learn from your clients. So you see the good things and the bad things that clients do. Uh, and one of them is, you know, understanding the market. So when we opened up Aston Clifton, um, I have a home in Chicago, okay? And, and so uh, Chicago, third, second or third, third largest city in the country, uh, global world-class airport, uh, there's a lot of, they say you fish where the fish are, right? So on the trade side, like Milwaukee's cool, but Chicago, there's more there. Uh, likewise, Shanghai. I went to Shanghai, uh, and I went to, the you know, first time, China in 98, um, when I was working at Foley. Mm -hmm. And we had just acquired a, a law practice in California, a healthcare practice. It had offices in four cities in California, Sacramento, San Francisco, LA, San Diego. I chaired the international team, and so my goal was to, to use that base for an age of practice. So we went, I went to China to look for a Chinese lawyer who was licensed in the United States who could come help us develop an Asian practice. So I had gone a long time there uh, for years, and I had relationships there. So I go over there six months into the business. China was just about, had just signed, rather, the uh, accession agreement to join the World Trade Organization, mm. okay, in December of 2001. And that meant that's what trade was going to blow up there. Before that, you did, China wasn't in our face. Once they joined the WTO, now we feel China, okay? So it was one of those things. It was six months after we started the business, and I was there with a friend of mine who worked for Price Waterhouse, who I'd met 20 years ago here in Milwaukee. He said, UP, man, you got to open up an office here. I said, Paul, his name was Paul Pank. I said, Paul, how would I do that? He says, I'll do it for you. So he, we, we rented uh, a, an apartment, a new apartment building in Chengdu Lu, downtown Shanghai. And we uh, hired two interns and paid them one work one day after school, one work the other day after school. So I had them like six days. And they made phone calls and they ordered equipment and they did market research in China. And that's when we decided that we were gonna grow in China. But it was one of those things where I didn't know exactly for sure. Again, things don't go as planned. If Paul Pong wouldn't have said, Eulis, I'll do it for you, probably wouldn't have tried it. But we saw that the numbers indicated the trade activity was going to increase. It wasn't just, we talked about facts, you know. Remember the WTO. If you know what that, what it means, let me give you two minutes, one minute, okay? You're invited. Uh, after World War II, in World War II we had two wars, in, one in the Pacific, one in, one in Europe. So the world was all whacked out. But in Europe in particular, the British hated the French, the Germans and the French and Italians, it was, all, the, it, was, it was all crazy. So when it was all done, it was all blown up. Mm -hmm. And they realized that to build their economies back, they had to do business with people who were their enemies, who they just mm -hmm. killed. So they reached an agreement called the GATT, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, okay? And who said, even if I don't like you, Let's agree that you won't discriminate against my goods and vice versa, that your duty rate's gonna be the same, and we're gonna treat each other the same. So that at least increased trade, allowed them to build Europe back. Well, the GATT grew to now it's called the World Trade Organization, 168 countries, mm -hmm. okay? Which means that all of them have to treat their goods the same. They can't keep them out, they can't treat you non-tariff non barriers like your certifications for your quality. You can't have your own. It's gotta be the same. So as a result, you see world trade. 
All right. So fundamentally, I mean, if I go back to the, I guess the, 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 the point, um, I forgot my point. <laughs> you were talking about expanding. Okay. Into, yes. in, into China. So, so, so that's how the World Trade Center works, or World Trade Organization works. So when China joins it, that means people are going to start doing business with China, which means, and China was a closed country for most, most of us. When I grew up, we didn't study China in school. Okay, now, of course, you study a lot. So, so we thought if we could be there early, okay, understand uh, what's going on there. Uh, uh, we now have clients, like I'm heading to San Francisco this week, uh, we're representing now Chinese companies doing business in the United States, where before we were there to help U.S. companies understand China. Okay, Ningbo's example. Ningbo, we worked with the sister city relationship with the city of Milwaukee. We helped mm -hmm. create that. So we went to Ningbo because we developed relationships there. Right, Ningbo is the second busiest port in China. So we picked Ningbo, why? Because of deep water port, because that's where trade comes It's going to happen. Yes, sir. What aspects of competing in sports at a high level carry over to business for you? Uh, I would think the, we call the, the three P's. Uh, you got to plan or prepare, you know, um, and uh, you got to practice. Like, you know, I, well, I, was, I went to bed at four this morning because I got a deal going on this weekend in San Francisco, but I was on my China team and I needed to stay up, so I had to prepare. Um, and then perform. I found that um, a lot of folks plan, uh, a lot of folks are good at practice, like Al, Coach Al used to say, there's some three o'clock players and there's some eight o'clock players. <laughs> you know, some guys are great at three, man. <laughs> you know, shoot the lights out, boy. But you get people in there at eight o'clock, sometimes it's different, right? So to be able to perform, and uh, again, athletics, the helpful part is, when you missed the free throw, you missed the free throw. Don't tell me why you missed the free throw. Don't tell me the wind was blown or was a, you know, it was a fly around your head. You missed the free throw. So that's the biggest thing about athletics where your performance, and if you're on the road, who they boo you, right? And at home, if you lose, they boo you. Yep. So you'll find, and by the way, and your, and your teammate is trying to compete for your job. So every, at least in major college, major college sports, most everybody was an All-American. Everybody used to be in the star. And, and, and like you might have won the job the first two weeks in practice, but before the first game, man, I'm trying my best to knock your block off because my mother's watching too, right? So that, that habit of, of uh, going at it uh, is what athletics has done for me. So as we wrap, uh, I would love to invite you to um, just share inspiring words. What, you know, what are you looking at? Uh, what, what are you thinking about business owners looking to do? Yeah. I would just tell you this. Uh, again, it's all a matter of perspective. I'm not special. But, but give. Like, we're here and we're leaving this, right? We really are. Don't kid yourself. Um, and so for your time here, I say make friends before you need them. I just say help um, because the circle of life has no end, really doesn't. And, and it, uh, I find the more I give, the more I get to give. So I would just encourage you to, to, uh, to help where you can. 
uh, give what you can. Uh, again, Brewers came from volunteering for the stadium board. Mm -hmm. So you just never know uh, where the benefits will come, but I do believe they come. And, and if you can make your mark by helping people, that's probably the best thing you can do. That, that would be the greatest goal I, I suggest for all of you. Try to help as many people as you can. You know, we didn't even get to talk about all the board work you do, all the volunteering and all the, all the nonprofits that you serve. So I'm, I appreciate you bringing that up this way. Please join me in thanking Euless Payne, Jr. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.